0: Welcome back to the Sira podcast about the life of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. This is episode 7. In this episode we will discuss the aftermath of the Battle of Badr, the reaction of the Quraysh in Mecca to the Battle of Badr, the captives of the Battle of Badr, and the expedition of the Prophet and the Muslims against Banu Koneka. And finally, some other events of the second year of the Hijrah. So we'll begin with the aftermath of the Battle of Badr. The Muslims were victorious, and after the victory, the Prophet sent a companion to take the news to Medina. Some of the people received the message about the victory of the Battle of Badr while they were burying the Prophet's daughter. His daughter's name was Rokaya. And this was the reason why Uthman ibn Affan, he was the husband of Rakayah, and Raqqaia was the prophet's daughter. And at the time of the battle, she was sick and Uthman stayed behind and the prophet gave him permission to stay behind and care for her while she was sick. And she wound up dying while the prophet was in battle at the Battle of Badr or at least away from the city of Medina while um, going forward to the Battle of Badr, of course. So yes, Uthman was excused by the Prophet from participating in the Battle of Badr in order to take care of, take care of his wife, uh, Rakayah. However, later on, many years later, and when uh, Uthman ibn Affan became the Khalifa, the, um, there are many people who held that against him, or they used this to denigrate or bring Uthman low, or say he was a lesser companion. And even now you still find some people who say these sort of things so after the battle is over and the prophet sallallahu alaihi wa and the soldiers the companions they're heading back to medina and they uh take a break or they stop at the uh, outskirts of medina and they're just laden down with the spoils of war uh many of the things they had captured from the uh from the participants of Badr, those Quraysh who died or were captured of course the muslims claimed all the property they took from them their armor their wealth their horses their camels all of these were things that the Muslims could use, and this was now booty or spoils of war. So when the Muslims arrived um, at the outskirts of Medina, of course, the, the Ansars and the and the people who stayed behind they congratulated the Muslims, and that and that was when the Prophet took his time, took the time to split the booty, split the spoils of war between those who who had participated, and even some of those who did not. For so, for instance, Uthman. He did not participate in the battle of Badr, but he still received a portion of the spoils of war. And while he was giving, handing out the, um, the the different the divisions of the spoils of war, some of the residents of Medina they congratulated the Muslims who had who had taken part, called them brave, and and extolled them and praised them. However, some of the Muslims who had taken part in the Battle of Badr, they kind of brushed it off and they said, "Like, well, it was a, it was a good victory, but essentially we were fighting against old men, and it is true. Basically, many of the people who participated in the Battle of Badr were the elders of Quraysh. For instance, Abu Jahl was an elder of Quraysh. He was not a young man by any means, and as we mentioned in previous episodes, the Quraysh were not." known to be warriors they were not the 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 rifar tribe like um that of abu dhar they were not like the aus and khazraj who had spent much of their uh, existence at least the past few centuries or at least the past few generations fighting each other they weren't like that the Quraysh were tradesmen they were businessmen they talked tough and everything but they weren't really fighters or anything like that and so some of these uh, men who had participated with the prophet, they kind of brushed it off and said, these guys weren't really all that tough. They were just a bunch of old men. And actually, I think some of them call them old ladies, actually, even more demeaning. But the prophet said that, um, kind of reprimanded them in a way, saying that uh, don't think, don't take it lightly or don't brush it off so so quickly because even though these were not the most skilled warriors i'm kind of paraphrasing what the prophet said he did say he did uh, basically tell them that these men who were killed they were the leaders of the Quraysh. they were the elite of the Quraysh. they were the ones who ha- who were primarily behind the persecution of the muslims while we were in in mecca these were the leaders and this was a great victory even though the competition may not have been all that great so now let's discuss um, the actual prisoners and the um, the different people who were, some of the people who were now captives of the Muslims. Altogether, there were about 70 Quraysh prisoners. There were the, the Quraysh lost a total of 70 men, so they had 70 casualties in the Battle of Badr. And while this is not a huge amount, for the number of people who went out there and for people who were not used to fighting, and the fact that the people who were killed were some of the highest-ranking men in Mecca, this was a huge blow to the Quraysh. Now, of the uh, captives, there were 70 or so captives, most of them were ransomed, but there were a few who the Prophet ordered to have executed. The uh, There's two of them we'll speak about that I found. There was um, a man named Uqba ibn Abi Ma'it, he was one of those who had assaulted prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam while he was still in mecca and he was a participant in the persecution of the weaker muslims in mecca and of course he had participated in the battle of badr and the prophet ordered order for him to be executed uh before when al-uqba ibn abi mu'aid found out that he was to be executed he began to plead to the Prophet to spare his life, and he asked him, well, who's going to take care of my children? And the Prophet responded simply, hellfire. So, Uqba um, ibn Abi Mu'ayyid was one of those executed. Another one who was executed was Nadir ibn al-Harith. Nadir ibn al-Harith, he was his, uh seemed like his father had, was, may have been Persian or may have had lots of business to do with the Persians. And so Nadir ibn Harith he spoke Farsi. And he made up lots of stories and Farsi. And uh, he would take some of the Persian tales and relate them to the Quraysh. And he accused the Prophet وسلم, of stealing his material. He uh, claimed that his information or his stories were greater than the Qur'an that the Prophet was reciting. And also, Nadr ibn al-Hadith, he was one of those who were chosen by the Quraysh to kill Prophet Muhammad sallallahu while he was still in bed. Before he made the hijrah. Um, they thought the Prophet was in bed, but actually it was Ali ibn Abi Talib. The Prophet had escaped uh, in the middle of the night and gotten away from them from them in their plot. But Nadr ibn al-Hadith was one of those who were ready to stab the Prophet while he was in his in in his sleep. So. He was another one that the prophet ordered to have executed. The rest of the captives, however, the prophet basically divided them up among the captives among uh, his companions. That is, and he ordered his companions to treat the captives well. And one of the one of the uh, captives actually later on commented how he was impressed that the Ansars, uh, these were basically the the um, inhabitants of Medina, who were his captors. One of his Ansar captors, when it was time for them to eat, they gave the Quraysh bread while the Ansars ate dates. Bread was seen as something healthier or more filling or more of a delicacy than the plain old dates, which grew all over the place. And he was impressed by that. And I believe he eventually later on became Muslim. All right, now the question came up as to what they were going to do with the captives in general. So now the Muslims have 70 prisoners of war in their possession. And the Prophet, وسلم, this is a, a brand new thing for them. He didn't really know what to do. So he called his companions and uh basically discussed with them some of the options of what they should do with the prisoners. And some of the companions, and an example of this would be Abu Bakr, he suggested treating them kindly. He, uh, he wanted to ransom them in the hope of they might bring in some uh, much-needed funds and money for the uh, fledgling Muslim community. He also reminded the Prophet that these most of these captives were their own relatives and that being soft with them and kind with them might help win them over later on. However, others, and this is particularly symbolized by Omar ibn Khattab, they disagreed with Abu Bakr's suggestion of ransoming them, and they wanted to kill them. Uh, Omar suggested that uh, every person, in order to prevent retaliation by their families later on, every one of the Muslims should take one of uh, someone from their own clan and execute them. And he, he uh, volunteered to take those captives who were from his own clan and execute them. And he went on like that. And basically, that was Omar's suggestion ultimately, however, Prophet Muhammad being the more or less kind-hearted person he was, he agreed with Abu Bakr, and most of the captains were ransomed except for those uh, two exceptions we mentioned earlier. So the next day, Omar ibn Khattab he walked into the Masjid and he saw Prophet Muhammad and Abu Bakr sitting within the Masjid crying and Omar um, wanted to know why. He asked, why are you crying? If um, whatever you're crying about, let me know so I can cry also. And if I can't cry, I'm going to make myself cry. That's the kind of person Umar was. So he asked what was the reason the Prophet recited uh, some verses from Suratul anfal this is chapter 8, particularly verses 67 through 69. And these verses basically indicated, or basically said that Umar ibn Khattab, his suggestion for killing the captives at that moment was the correct path, and that was a path that Muslims should have taken, and that was a path that Allah would have approved of, ultimately. And we'll go ahead and recite some of these verses, and then give you the, the translation. <laughs> فَكُلُوا مِمَّا غَنِمْتُمْ حَلَالًا طَيِّبًا وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَّحِيمٌ It is not for a Prophet to have captives of war until he inflicts a massacre upon Allah's enemies in the land. Some Muslims desire the commodities of this world, but Allah desires for you the hereafter, and Allah is exalted in might and wise. If not for a decree from Allah that preceded, you would have been touched for what you took by a great punishment. So consume what you have taken of war booty as being lawful and good, and fear Allah, indeed Allah is forgiving and merciful. We can see from these verses that Allah may not have been particularly pleased with the Muslim course of action at this time, but he allowed it to go through. But it was a warning uh, for the Muslims to be careful going forward. So now let's discuss three of the captive stories. There are three of them, there are of course 70 of them, but three of them that stand out as particularly interesting. We'll begin with uh, one of the captives named Suhail ibn Amr. He was a leader from among the Quraysh. He was known as the Quraysh's main spokesperson. He, was, he had a, a great orator, oratorical voice. oratorical voice. So he was the, uh, the Quraysh's main uh, loudspeaker, so to, so to say. And during his time in Mecca, when the Prophet wa sallam, was there as well, he used to speak out against Prophet Muhammad and encourage people to, to uh, disbelieve him or to persecute him and his followers. When Suhail ibn Amr was captured, Omar ibn al Khattab, once again being a little bit more on the rough side of life, he told the prophet that the best punishment for Suhail would be to pull out his lower teeth so that he couldn't speak anymore. During the battle, Suhel's lips had been um, had been injured during the battle. so Omar wanted to further uh, heard him further dis- uh, mutilate him by pulling out his lower teeth, and that would totally ruin Suhail ibn Amr's career as a as a speaker. But the Prophet صلى <laughs> صلى <laughs> صلى <laughs> refused to mutilate him. He said That's, he's not going to do that sort of thing, and Suhail was eventually ransomed. Uh, eventually, later on, many years later, Suhail ibn Amr would become Muslim and he would actually fight in the Battle of Yarmouk, which was one of the major battles in which Khalid ibn Walid, who was also a pagan at this time and later on became a Muslim general. This is when the Muslims conquered much of what we now know of as Syria. If you wanted to hear that episode, it is discussed in the second season of the Islamic History Podcast. when We talk about the Battle of Yarmouk. Just had to take a quick look, particularly... Season 2, Episode 5, Yarmouk and Kordesiyah, we discussed that battle in general. I don't think Suhail ibn Ahmed is mentioned within that episode, but if you just want to know, about, know more about the battle itself, you can hear about it there. So the next interesting captive was Abbas ibn Muttalib, who was actually the Prophet's uncle. And we mentioned in earlier episodes how Abbas uh, accompanied the Prophet during the Pledge of Al-Aqaba, now Abbas had accepted Islam, and there's actually a little bit of disagreement there. Most indication seems to be that he accepted Islam. There's in the wilderness you'll see some of this, um, some of this proof of why he most likely had accepted Islam, but he just kept it secret while he was in Mecca. He did not make the hijrah with, with Prophet, and now here he was a captive, after having taken part in the battle of Badr against the Prophet. So, you can kind of see why there may be some discrepancy as to whether Abbas had actually accepted Islam or not. But I think overall, the evidence points to the fact that he had actually become Muslim, but he was keeping a secret. Now, the person who actually, the companion who actually captured Abbas was a pretty small man, a very slight man, while Abbas was a fairly large man. Uh, remember, most of the people in uh, Quraysh, especially the leaders, and Abbas may not have been one, one of the major leaders, but he was an elder among the Quraysh. He was a successful businessman, and he was he basically had fairly good health, and so he had a pretty large size, whereas most of the companions, particularly the Ansars who were in Medina, they were primarily agriculturalists. They were a smaller town, didn't have the wealth that Mecca had. And so many of them, because of perhaps um, less nutrition, they were smaller. And this companion was one of those who were smaller. The prophet asked this companion, how did he capture Abbas, considering that Abbas was so much larger? The man said that, the companion said that, A strange man in all white had assisted him in taking down Abbas and capturing him, and the Prophet confirmed that that mysterious man happened to be an angel. And so now Abbas, um, I'm sorry, the Prophet turns his attention to Abbas, and he knows Abbas. He knows his uncle. He knows his uncle has money, and he tells Abbas to ransom himself and um, all of his family members who were captured along with him. Abbas then goes on to say that he actually is a Muslim. He believes in the Prophet's message, but because he has stayed in Mecca, the Quraysh pressured him and forced him to join them in this battle. And the Prophet responded by saying that if what Abbas said was true, then Allah will reward him for his accepting Islam and for being Muslim in his heart, but he still had to pay for his actions. Whatever was in his heart, his actions were different, he had participated in a, in a fight against the Muslims, how much he actually did, whether he actually raised his sword against somebody, only Allah knows, but still, he had to pay for what was, what, uh, was evident, and so Ab- Abbas was forced, to, was forced to ransom himself and those members of his family. We're going to come back to Abbas in a few moments and discuss why it is most likely that he had actually accepted Islam. Now, the final captive we're going to discuss today is perhaps the most interesting story. And this was the capture of Abu La'as, who was Zainab bent Muhammad's husband. Yes, Abu As was the prophet's son-in-law. He had not accepted Islam, but he was married to the prophet's daughter named Zainab. Uh, Abul As was actually the Prophet's nephew in a way, really Zainab Zainab's cousin, but Abul As As's Abu um, mother what mother was Khadijah's sister and Khadijah, Anha, was the mother of Zainab, of course, and she was also the wife of Prophet Muhammad. So Zainab and Abu As were cousins. And they were married, Abu as and Zainab, they got married before the Prophet started receiving revelation, before Islam had started coming to Mecca. However, after the Prophet uh, began to preach the message to the people of of, uh, Mecca, Abu Lahab encouraged the people who were associated with Prophet Muhammad to basically disconnect from him or cut off relations. And so Abu Lahab had one of his sons who were very who was very close who was engaged to marrying one of the prophet's daughters, particularly his daughter Raqqaiya, he encouraged his son to break off that engagement, and the son did. Later on Raqqaiya would instead marry Uthman ibn Athan, and as we know, she died while the Prophet was at the Battle of Badr. Abu Lahab also tried to convince Abu As to divorce Zainab but Abu'l-As and Zainab they loved each other and Abu'l-As refused to divorce her now technically speaking from an Islamic perspective their marriage was already null and void because Zainab accepted her father's message whereas Abu'l-As did not. However since they were in Mecca the Prophet did not have the authority to enforce that law and so while they were in, in Mecca Zainab continued to live with Abu as as husband and wife. And so now Abu as is captured at the Battle of Badr. Uh, he decides to participate, evidently. And word gets back to Zainab, who, by the way, she did not make the Hijrah with Prophet. She stayed in Mecca with her husband. Once again, the Prophet did not have the authority to make her come with him. And so Zainab stayed in Mecca with her husband. And when Zainab found out about it, she sent a necklace to the prophet um, that had been given to her by her mother who was of course the prophet's wife khadijah of course dead by this time but the prophet always seemed to have a soft spot for her throughout the rest of his life and we mentioned that in earlier episodes how much he loved her but in any case so she sent this necklace back to the prophet And when the prophet received the necklace, he immediately knew what it was and his heart really softened. And he knew that this was Zainab's attempt to ransom her husband, Abul As. And so the prophet summoned Abul As's captors, um, the ones who were holding him prisoner, and encouraged them to set him free. He didn't make them do it. He asked them to do it. Uh, He encouraged them to do it. And when the uh the companions saw how much the prophet wanted this he was their leader He was their prophet they loved him of course they agreed to set him free and they refused to take any ransom for it though they could have definitely asked for it and the prophet said allah would have certainly given it to them but they agreed to set him free without any payment and the prophet was happy with that and there may have been some other backdoor dealing because some some historians believe that uh, one of the conditions of Abul As being set free was that he would send Zainab to Medina because that's exactly what happened. Uh, the prophet sent he once Abul As was free, he sent him on to to um, to back to Mecca. And when Abul As returned to Mecca, he well actually Abu'l-As sent word back to Mecca for Zainab to come on to Medina and be with her father. So when Zainab is about to leave Mecca, her brother-in-law, who is Abul As's uh, brother, basically, and I, I suppose also Zainab's cousin, her brother-in-law decides that he wants to escort her out of Mecca and back to Medina. He knows the danger of that Zainab faces right now, with her husband being a, a recently released captive. The Quraysh were very upset about all of the losses they had experienced um, at bottom, and we'll go into that soon, also, and also not to mention the fact her father was the main culprit, the main person behind all of their humiliation and defeat. Her brother in law knew it was not going to be easy to get her out of out of Mecca without any trouble, and so, but he was a he was evidently a, probably a very young man, and so. He decided to be bold about this. And so her brother-in-law, he took his bow and arrow. He took his bow, slung it across his shoulder, took a bunch of arrows. And in broad daylight, broad daylight in the middle of Mecca, he decided to escort Zainab straight through the confines of the Kaaba where all of the Quraysh could see him. And remember, the Quraysh are hot and mad about all of their losses at Badr, all the people who had been killed. We had not even gotten to their reaction yet. We're going to talk about that soon. And as he's leading her um, through the precincts of the Ka'aba, evidently she's laying down with bags, she's on she's on top of a camel. It's evident they're about to go on a journey, and it's also pretty darn obvious that she's going to go to Medina where her father was. The Quraysh mobilized to stop them. And so her brothers, her brother-in-law stops the camel and lays down his arrows in a row and takes his bow and Mace like Like, okay, come and get it. Y'all want to stop me? Come and get it. First one steps forward is going to get this arrow. But cooler heads prevailed. Abu Sufyan, he sees the problem here and he steps in and intercedes and he goes to talk to the brother-in-law and basically says, what are you doing? What are you doing? You, you're going to go. We're already humiliated because of the things her father had done because of the trouble her father brought to us. And now you're going to bring her through here in the middle, in, the, in broad daylight where we all can see this. Come on, have some respect for us. At the very least, go back in, go back, go back home and come out and leave in the middle of the night where it won't be so humiliating for us. And so the brother-in-law and Zainab, they agree and they head back home and yes later on that evening they snuck out in the middle of the night and make their way on to medina so zainab is now in medina her husband Abul as per their per his agreement with prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he goes back to mecca and they're now living separately remember Abul as had not accepted islam as yet years later long after uh, this had all taken place, perhaps maybe about six years or so, uh, maybe a little bit less, maybe about four or five years. It was after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, whatever it was. Abu as was captured by the Muslims while he was on a, on a business trip. He's traveling through Arabia and he runs across one of the Muslims' patrols or whatever, and he was captured and taken back to Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But this is after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah and the Treaty of Hudaybiyah of we will eventually get to that inshallah a full explanation of what it is but for right now the treaty of hudaybiyah is uh basically a truce between a peace treaty between the muslims and the quraysh and so they don't really have any reason to harm abul as zainab's husband nonetheless he's a he's a wealthy qurayshian muslims not going to pass this opportunity up and so they take him prisoner they bring him to the prophet and while abul as is held captive by the muslims he is treated very very well very kindly and he's so impressed by the uh treatment that they that the muslims showed him that he winds up accepting islam and with his acceptance of islam he moves to medina and at this point now because he's muslim he allows his daughter zaynab to move back in with her husband abu As, and they continue to live on as husband and wife until i believe um I'm certain Zaynab died before, I'm almost certain Zaynab died before Abu Lahab did. But the point is, the Prophet ﷺ allowed them to live together as husband and wife again. So now let's look at the reaction in Mecca. How did the Quraysh react to all of these things that were going on? The Quraysh, first of all, they were stunned. They were absolutely shocked that so many of their elite members so many of the elders and their leaders had been killed in this battle abu lahab himself did not take part in the battle he did not go to badr but he was among the leader among the leaders of the quraysh and all of the quraysh men those who did not go to fight they sent someone to fight in their place so they was like a slave or a maula a Maulah was someone who was attached to a family, not quite a slave. They were maybe a freed slave who was still attached to the family that had owned them uh, previously. And so it was more like a working relationship, like a partnership. And you had this a lot in Arabia. So it wasn't anything bad in a way. As a matter of fact, it was pretty good for a weaker family to be associated with a more powerful, a more influential family. So it was a, a fairly good thing. And lots of people had maulahs back then. So it's kind of hard. I can't think of any one to one English word for it. But this best I can say is that a maula comes from the word wali, which means like a protector. So a maula was one who is protected, and a wali was a protector. So maybe that's a word we can say, like a protected. But basically, there are lots of maulas in here. And anyway, most of these men who were going to, um, who. Most of these, the, these Quraysh men who did not go to Badr, they instead sent either a slave or a maula in their place. Abu Laha was one of those who sent his maula. So now, one of Abbas's maulas, okay, we're, back in, we're still in Mecca now, and we mentioned how Abbas had been taken prisoner while, in, while um, participating, participating in the Battle of Badr. One of Abbas's Maulas who was Muslim, he was at a well when Abu Sufyan and Abu Lahab were discussing the outcome of the battle. And this is why I, I tend to believe that Abbas had actually accepted Islam but was keeping it secret, because both the Maullah who was uh, who, the Maula was Muslim as well as Abbas's wife, Umm al Fadl, she was also Muslim. Umm al Fadl uh and and uh the Maula, i can't remember his name right now they were happy they were secretly happy uh listening to abu lahab and abu sufyan talk about the uh the losses at badr so abu lahab is talked to uh, to uh abu sufyan about what happened at at uh, badr and abu sufyan says that they were that he saw horsemen in white robes Fighting against the Quraysh, and none of the Quraysh could take these horsemen down. Now the maula who was listening to this conversation, he suddenly spoke up and said, "Well, those were angels." And as soon as Abu Lahab hears this, he goes ahead and punches this maula in the face and starts beating on him. And Ummul Fadl, who is Abu, who was um, Abbas's wife. She gets a pole and smacks Abu Lahab in the head. And so you dare hit him when his master's not here, basically Abbas. And so Abu Lahab is feeling all humiliated and he's hurting also. She smacked him in the head with his pole. And so he just slinks off in in humiliation. Well, seven days later, Abu Lahab came down with a serious illness, uh, a really disgusting illness that would wind up killing him. It was an illness that produced all sorts of sores over his body, and when he died, it left off such a the the his sons were scared to touch him because they didn't want to catch the disease that Abu Lahab had. So Abu Lahab, Abu Lahab sat in his house stinking, dead and stinking for several days before other members of Quraysh shamed his sons to go and bury him. Like you're gonna let your father sit there and rot like that? Bury him. So finally, the the, the sons of Abu Lahab they paid some slaves, or they forced some slaves to take Abu Lahab out. Uh, they had to uh, wrap themselves in all sorts of garments and everything, and hold him in a sort of like um like a stretcher in a way to keep their hands from touching him. They didn't want to touch him and anything. They didn't want to bury him. They took him someplace desolate, um, dug a hole. Put him in there and just filled the hole with rocks, and I even was saying, just filled it with the rocks and cut and left them there, and that was the end of Abu Lahab. Now the other Quraysh, of course, they um, they were once again stunned by the defeat at Badr, and many of them were crying. But others, they encouraged, nope, don't cry, don't cry, keep it quiet, hold it in, because they didn't they did not want word getting back to Medina that they were crying because. Crying was is a natural human emotion, but in this case, it would have been something to make the Muslims of Medina proud. It's some kind of a strange warrior mentality back then. We're going to make your wives cry and in, in grief when we kill you. It's sort of like that. If you can imagine, you know, this medieval. This is probably even more than medieval. This Middle Ages mentality of fighting and warfare. So the remaining Quraish, the remaining leaders that were still there, they had uh, tried to make an agreement not to cry for their for their, uh, lost ones, for their dead and for the captives. And they also made an agreement that they were not going to rush to Medina and start paying out these ransoms to get their families back. They wanted to make the Muslims wait. They were hoping that if they make the Muslims wait, then that would bring the prices down. Uh, for because obviously they, if they rushed over there immediately to get their family, the price is going to be very, very high because the Muslims have them, you know have them um in a very difficult situation, and so they wanted to wait and they also didn 't want to seem so desperate they they were trying to basically save face they didn 't want to seem very desperate they didn 't want to seem uh like they were like they were humiliated, even though they really were by the Muslims and so they agreed among themselves not to rush forth and pay and pay this ransom. However, most of them did not stick to that agreement. Some of the wealthy Quraysh began to send their ransoms secretly by messenger, or at least send messengers to Medina to try to find out what were the ransom demands and began to make arrangements to get their family back. And almost all of them did this secretly. Word eventually got out and everybody forgot about the agreement. And little by little, most of the captives were ransomed back to Medina. Uh, sorry, back to Mecca. So that pretty much ends the story of the aftermath of the Battle of Badr. But we still have a few more events, some very important events, actually, for the second year of the Hijrah, which is when the Battle of Badr took place. Another important battle was the Battle of Banu Qaynuqa. Nowhere near as as important as the Battle of Badr, but still uh, fairly important. The Banu Qaynuqa, that was one of the Jewish tribes living in Medina before the Prophet arrived, Banu Kainuka, they were not really involved in agriculture. They didn't have like orchards and farms and animals and stuff like that. They were mostly goldsmiths and armorers that, uh, that made arms, weapons, um, shields, armor, basically. They, that's what, that was their experti- expertise. And we had mentioned in the earlier episode how the Prophet Sallallahu had reached an agreement with the Jewish tribes that everyone would participate in the defense of, of, of Medina. But during the Battle of Badr, only the Muslims participated, mostly the Ansars and the, uh, and the Muhajirun. Uh, some of the hypocrites, most of the hypocrites did not participate and none of the, I don't think any of the hypocrites participated actually, and none of the um, Jewish tribes helped either. So, after none of the Jewish tribes offered to help during the Battle of Badr, some tensions began to rise between the Muslims and the Jewish tribes there. The Prophet he forgave them. He let it go that they did not assist them during the Battle of Badr. But from that point forward, he didn't really trust them. And there were also some rumors floating around that Banu Qainuka was working with the Quraysh to try to drive Prophet Muhammad and the Muslims out of Medina. So, when these rumors got back to the Prophet, he called the elders of Banu Qaynuqa, called them to a meeting. He began to warn them and advise them to accept him and accept Islam, or they would face a similar result as the Quraysh had at Badr. And so now the Banu Qaynuqa Banu Kanuka, they were insulted and they scoffed and they said, oh, no, 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 no. We're not like the Quraysh, okay? You're not going to just run us over. We're not a bunch of old men. We are fighters. I mean, these are guys who made weapons. Their, their main profession was making weapons. So they knew how to use them, obviously. and said, we're better fighters. We know how to make weapons. We have a fortress. We're not the Quraysh. Don't get it twisted. <laughs> Don't get us mixed up with them. And so... Tension was rising between the Muslims and Banu Kainuka. We almost say all of the Jewish tribes, because it wasn't all of them. It was this particular tribe, Banu Kainuka, that tension was starting to rise. So everything comes to a head when a Muslim woman, one of the Saudi women, was attacked or accosted by, one of the, by a goldsmith from Banu Kainuka. It seems as if she may have been shopping in that market, or maybe she was selling within that market. Maybe agreement agreement broke out between them. But whatever the case, the, the man from Banu Kanuka attacked the woman uh, and, her, and hurt her. And so there were other Muslims around. Some of the Ansars were around. They saw this, and they raised the alarm and immediately rushed to her protection. Of course, they were in Banu Kanuka's territory in that market, and Banu Kanuka rushed to defend their guy. But once again, remember, Banu Kanuka, this was their home, and they make weapons for a living. They were well-armed. The Muslims were not there to be armed, and Muslims were easily and quickly beaten back and and chased away. And some of them were actually harmed uh, in the scuffle. So, word gets back to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam what happens over here. And so, he assembles his army, and he goes to march on Banu Kanuka. Banu Kainuka, they go and hold themselves up in their fortress, and the prophet surrounds their fortress and lays siege to it for two weeks. Eventually, after two weeks, Banu Kainuka realize that they weren't much better than the Quraysh were, and they go and sue for peace. They basically surrender and ask the prophet for his for the terms of for terms of peace. Now, according to the practice of this time, remember we're we're talking about the. Uh, 700s or so, 700 um, CE in the Christian era. During this time, when a force has been, and this will continue on actually for centuries, really, until very recently, and, and the whole scope of human history, this practice I'm about to describe, has been around for a long time. It's only maybe in the past 300 years or so, it became taboo to do this sort of thing. But all the up until the Crusades, which was a good... 500 years after Prophet Muhammad even on into the Mongols, which is another 100 or so years after that, this was still the practice. When two sides are fighting or about to fight, one side who thinks they're going to win, they will offer terms of surrender. They will say something like, surrender now and we'll go easy on you. We'll let you live. We may kill a few of your leaders, may take a few of you guys captives, but you're going to pay us some tribute. But surrender now and we'll go easy on you. However, if you make us fight this out, if we lay siege to you and we eventually break through, all bets are off, we're killing everybody. Well, we're definitely going to kill all the men and the women and children, they're going to become slaves. That was that was really the easy option. Killing everybody was pretty much acceptable, also. That was pretty much expected as well. Uh, if you just kill the men, and take the women and children uh captives, that was considered light, basically, all term all things considered. And so with the when the Prophet had now and the Muslims had now the terms of surrender from the Banu Qainuka, the Banu Qainuka knew what to expect. The expectations were that the Prophet would kill the men and take the women and children as slaves. And by every right, the Muslims had this is what the Muslims were expected to do. However, the chief of the hypocrites, Abdullah, Abdullah ibn Obey ibn Salul, we spoke about him during the episode of the Ifk, the slander against Aisha. That would be the first episode of season four if you want to know more about him and uh, the hypocrites in general. Abdullah ibn Obey ibn Salul, he was a close friend of the Banu Kanuka, and he interceded for them and acted as a mediator between the Prophet sallam, and the uh, banu kainuka and he basically convinced the prophet to just banish them just kick them out of medina and so banu kainuka did just that they left medina with only as much as they could carry with them and the muslims took possession of everything else they left behind they didn't really have lands or anything like that as we mentioned they weren't into agriculture or farming they were armorers they were goldsmiths and so the muslims took possession of their weapons and tools uh, when they left so that was the second major event of the second year of Hijrah. Uh, there are a few other minor events which we'll go through as well. And uh, these are mostly minor. Um, they're important in their own respect, though. Uh, for one, the first, al Adha, which um, so was for Muslims, celebrates the um, Hajj season or the sacrifice of Hajj. Uh, this was the first time It was celebrated. And this took place after Banu Kainuka were was expelled from Medina. There were also a few minor raids and expeditions by the Muslims, so remember this now. The first celebration of Eid al-Adha was in the second year of the Hijrah. And there were, like I said, a few minor raids and expeditions. The, most, the one that comes into mind was Abu Sufyan. He led a retaliatory raid against the Muslims for the defeat at, at the Battle of Badr. He took uh, about 200 horsemen and he uh, actually met up with the chief of the Banu Nadir. Banu Nadir was another Jewish tribe in Medina. So maybe some of those rumors about the Banu Kanuka collaborating with the uh, Quraysh were true. Abu Sufyan met with the leaders of Banu Nadir and they provided him with information and intelligence about Medina. And so Abu Sufyan and his 200 horsemen, they attacked a mus a garden that was that belonged to the muslims and there were two uh muslims who were tending this garden he they attacked it at night they uh killed those they killed the two muslims who were who were tending to the garden and they torched the entire garden and also destroyed a few nearby houses and then they ran back to mecca the prophet sent his soldiers after them but abu sufyan got away Uh, so that was a Like I said, a minor raid, but it shows the collaboration between Banu Nadir, another one of the Jewish tribes, and the Quraysh. Uthman also married, we mentioned this already, after Rukhaya died a few months later, Uthman married the prophet's daughter, Umm Kulthum, and so Uthman received the uh, nickname Dur-Nurain, which means the owner of the two lights, because he was married to two of the prophet's daughters, And also in this year, there's some disagreement about whether it was before or after the Battle of Badr, but during this year, Ali, the Prophet's cousin, married Fatima, the Prophet's daughter, and they also had their first son about a year or so later. So that will wrap it up for uh, episode 17, as well as for the second year of the Hijrah. In the next episode, we'll go on to some of the events leading up to the second major battle of the Muslims, the Battle of Ahud. So until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.